Today we begin uh, week 11 of our fellowship of the Spirit's Sword, in which together as a church we are reading through the New Testament this year and hearing the word preached together as well from something we read the previous week. And I was talking with Sharon Buer last uh, Sunday and she said she likes to guess what text we'll be preaching on from the reading plan. And she's been right a few times, so maybe you can connect with her and place some bets. And that could be a fun addition to this fellowship. Uh, so if this, is, if this is the first you're hearing about this, uh, we have little brochures in the foyer with the plan on it, and you can also find it on our website. And, you, and uh, I want you to join with us in this. If you've gotten behind or just haven't uh, started, uh, just pick up right where we're at this week. And uh, all, all the previous weeks, debt forgiveness here. And, and the last few weeks, just uh, what it's looked like in my life these last few weeks, I've been listening to it on this audio Bible app uh, called Dwell, which is really great. It has these quality readers and uh, different ones you can choose from and background music. And, and it's pretty great. And I'll listen to the chapter of the day three times right in a row. Uh, and it usually takes like 15 minutes at the speed I listen to it. And, and then I, I let that chapter lead me into a time of, of prayer that usually uh, seems to echo the themes and truths of that chapter. And it's been really cool uh, knowing that so many of my fellow Bethel members are also doing something similar that same day, uh, maybe even that same time. And so join this fellowship and uh, in taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the text we've chosen from last week's readings is Acts 26. And so if you turn to Acts 26 in your Bibles, we're getting close to the end of Acts. And then the next book in the plan is going to be Galatians because you can see in Galatians how Paul is teaching and working out some of the themes and conflicts that have arisen through this story of Acts that we've been reading. But that's next week. For now, we're still in Acts. And in chapter 26, Paul finds himself before the king over all Palestine, King Agrippa. And this is the third time in Acts that we hear about the testimony of Paul regarding his conversion and call to ministry. It's the second time we hear him tell it himself. And the first time he told it, he had, uh, it was when he was arrested and he got to proclaim his testimony to the whole Sanhedrin, which is the leaders of the Jews. And then uh, through some circumstances, he gets moved to the coast of Caesarea and he's still in prison for two years. When uh, a new Roman governor puts Paul in front of King Agrippa to hear what he has to say. And that's where we are in this story. So two years into Paul's Caesarean imprisonment. And this lowly, wrongly imprisoned Christian missionary finds himself with the opportunity to share his story and the gospel of Jesus with one of the most influential men of that time in that place. And we already know the story of Paul's conversion. We heard it preached a few weeks ago, but I want to pick up on a portion of this text that the other versions don't include. Because here Paul shares a bit more of what Jesus said to him when he appeared to him and, and converted him and called him. And that's where I want to pick up. So if you look in your text, it will be, uh, it's, I want to read kind of a long portion. So uh, in this chapter, so prepare to listen well. Starting in verse 14. <clears throat> And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, The Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of this has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Let's pray. Our Father, Make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Like I said, we have in this telling of Paul's conversion something that we don't have quite in the others. It's an extended commission from Jesus himself. Paul elaborates on what Jesus said to him when he called him. And so I think that's really important, a really important text for us to see how Jesus envisioned the ministry of his apostle to the, to the Gentiles. And so I want us to reflect on that a bit from verses 14 to 19, where uh, Jesus tells Paul what he has called him to be and where he is sending him and what he plans to accomplish. And I love the way Jesus talks about it. And so first we'll talk about Paul's appointment, what roles Christ appoints him to, and how he is faithful to that appointment even before Festus and Agrippa in this story. And then we'll talk about what Christ is going to do through him. So first, Paul's appointment. He tells Paul not just what to do, but what he is to be. He says in verse 16, rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you. 
So Jesus doesn't just say, do this and do that and do this, but he appoints him to two roles and all that those roles entail. He says he's appointed to be a servant and a witness. Now, for the word, the word servant there is not the same word the New Testament usually uses for servant. This word is actually translated usually in the New Testament as guard or officer or attendant. Like when the officers of the chief priests and Pharisees went with lanterns and torches and weapons to arrest Jesus. That's the same word, huperites. It's a person under another person with a position to assist them in their official duties, like a professional subordinate. And Paul hints at this, this idea when he connects this word with the word steward in 1 Corinthians. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants who parates and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So Paul is a steward and servant, an assistant or officer of Christ. And that requires certain things of him. And it adds weight to his shoulders and requires him a worthiness of this task. But it also reminds him that he's not the one in charge. And the results are not on his shoulders, but on God's. He is a mere underling. And, and he has the call of an underling to stay under and it reminds me of this beautiful passage from the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs book. It, uh, his book is called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in this passage, he says, Oh, under, under, get you under, O oh soul. Keep under, keep low, keep under God's feet. You are under God's feet and keep under his feet. Keep under the authority of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the power that God has over you. To keep under, that is to submit. The soul can submit to God at the time when it can send itself under the power and authority and sovereignty and dominion that God has over it. So Paul is first appointed as an underling. And the second role he has, is, he is appointed to, is that of a witness. He is to be a witness. It is something you are, not just something you do. And what is he to witness to? A witness to, he, Jesus says he is to be a witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you. Much like a witness to a crime is called upon to give testimony to what they have seen. That's exactly what Jesus says to Paul here. Paul is called to be a witness to what he has seen Christ in. The things in which he, he has seen Christ, but he's also called to be a witness, notice, to the things he has yet to see. As Christ calls him, he gives him an expectation and in anticipation, he says, you will see me at work and you will be a witness to that as well. He must keep his spiritual eyes peeled for the work of Christ and be expectant and ready. And Jesus says that in particular, he will send him to the Gentiles, meaning to the world. He intends for his gospel and his spirit to spread throughout the world, to cross cultures and transform lives. And he tells Paul, he tells, uh, Paul tells King Agrippa in verse 19, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. He declared to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. And he says in verse 22, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
Paul was faithful in his missionary work. And he is faithful even as a prisoner before, to his appointment as a servant and a witness. And I want you to notice his courage and his commitment in this calling. Because you might not pick up on it right away if you don't really grasp who Festus is. Because the next thing that happens in the story is what? Of course, Festus cuts him off and calls him crazy. And Festus is the one who has arranged this meeting with King Agrippa. And so who is Festus? He's the guy who replaced Felix. And you remember what Paul's interaction with Felix was like. Those of you who've read along in the plan know that Felix is the reason Paul has been stuck in prison these last two years. Because Paul got an opportunity to talk to Felix. And when he did, what did he do? He proclaimed the gospel boldly. And let me, remind, let me read the text to remind you, to refresh your memory. Felix sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So Felix was alarmed by Paul's message and he kept him in jail for two years. So now Paul has an opportunity to talk to this man's successor. And many of us would probably think, here's my chance to do things differently. Finally, I get a chance to fix my mistake and get out of here. If I can just keep my mouth shut, maybe I'll be free. But that's not how Paul thought. I was reminded of this in a community group discussion just the other day about the Philippian jailer and how Paul stuck around in jail after God opened the prison with that miraculous earthquake. Someone pointed out that most of us in that miracle would automatically assume in that situation that God had done that in order to free us from jail. But not Paul. We would have been like, sweet, God set us free. Let's bolt. But Paul thought, how is God setting up an opportunity for the gospel to change lives in this situation? How can I be a servant and a witness? And he stuck around and he saved his jailer's life. And that's what he's doing again. He's not thinking about himself and how he can go free. He's thinking about the souls in front of him and about the glory of his God. And he's not so much concerned about his physical chains as he is about their spiritual chains. And this lowly prisoner before these grand important men at this regal hearing, Paul is unintimidated by the pomp and circumstance because he lives for something much more grand. He cares for more, more about these men than, he, than just flattering their egos. And he's so radical and so bold, and so different that he seems crazy. That's what Festus says. He blurts it out, cutting Paul off. He says, you're out of your mind. You've gone nuts. And now, I think it's worth noting, though, what was the breaking point for Festus in Paul's speech? He agreed to hear Paul out patiently, if you read earlier, but at some point, he just can't take it. Paul's message seems too ludicrous. What was the thing Paul had just talked about? Look at verse 23. Being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It was the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection for Gentiles like Festus. 
Festus's Roman worldview would have made him see the resurrection from the dead as ridiculous. Especially if you think it should have any influence on the Roman world beyond your weird religious community, Paul. Now, does that sound familiar? But when Festus called him crazy, Paul calmly and respectfully said, no, I'm actually being quite rational. And then he appeals to Agrippa. Because Festus is an outsider. He's a Roman official, but Agrippa has been in Palestine where Jesus ministered. Paul says, I know you're an outsider, Festus, but Agrippa knows these things. Agrippa was young when Jesus died, but he's lived here in the aftermath. Paul says at the end of verse 26, these things were not done in a corner. I love that. It's such a vivid image. Paul assumes that anyone who lived in Israel the last 20 years knows enough that they can't outright dismiss the power of Christ and the gospel. The manifestation of the Son of God was a public affair. Christianity did not start in a dark room or with some private mystical experience like so many false religions. No, it was outrageously public. It was a matter of historical fact that could be attested to and that immediately and permanently and continuously made a noticeable mark on the world. You can't slough it off. You can say you don't want to believe in it, but you can't laugh it off as crazy. There's too much evidence. And any reasonable person could not call Paul crazy for what he is saying. And you could tell that Agrippa knows this to be true because he doesn't join in calling Paul crazy with Festus. Instead, he asks, Paul, are you trying to convert me? And he, he kind of sounds astounded at Paul's boldness that he would use this hearing not to try and get free, but to try and convert him. He sees what Paul is doing. The King James translates Agrippa as saying, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Which is such a sad statement. To be almost persuaded. I know for a fact that some in this room are almost persuaded. Amen. But there is an eternity in that word almost. An eternal chasm in that word. I pray that nobody leaves this room today almost persuaded. Amen. Paul believed that when he spoke about the gospel of Jesus Christ, each moment people heard it was filled with moral weight. A couple chapters after this, when people come and talk with Paul about Christ, Paul quotes the, the condemning lament of the prophet Isaiah, a passage that Jesus also quoted in his ministry, where Isaiah says, For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And then Paul follows that up by saying, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. In other words, he's saying this is a crucial moment. If you do not listen if you close your eyes and shut your ears, a crucial moment has passed for you. You failed to believe when you should have, and you will not be healed. You will not hinder the gospel. It will go to others who will listen. 
but you will remain in darkness. Do not trifle with this message and treat your response as insignificant. How does Paul respond to Agrippa? Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. He says, it's not just about you, Agrippa, but everyone here. I want you all to be like me, with me. I wish that everyone would be as I am. And what is that? What's that state of being he's talking about? Well, Jesus described it a few verses earlier when he commissioned Paul, as we might say it, saved. But that's not the way Jesus said it when he described it to Paul, what he would do among the Gentiles. We sometimes use the term saved like it's a simple thing. We use it as like a linguistic bag that we stuff full of way too much meaning. And when we do that, we lose track of some of it in there. So I love the way Jesus talks about salvation what he wants to do in people's lives and hearts as he saves them and calls them to himself. So here's how he says it in verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wow. This is what has happened to us who have placed our faith in Christ. Seven incredible, glorious things we are given here. Sight, light, God, forgiveness, a place, sanctification, faith, these are such amazing counterpoints to the devastating state of the world because the world is blind and loves darkness, unable to perceive and enjoy the blazing brightness of the glory of God. The world is influenced and oppressed by the power of an evil enemy, unable to turn to God and relate to him personally. The world is condemned under the weight of their guilt of their unforgiven sin. The world is impure and unholy in need of purification and sanctification. The world is cut off from the family of God, adrift without true eternal belonging. The world is tattered, has a tattered and misplaced trust and faith in self or in idols and will inevitably be let down. But Christ comes with his appointed servants and witnesses to offer sight and light and a relationship with God through forgiveness of sins and sanctification and a designated place of belonging among fellow believers in the family of God and a firm faith with an unshakable foundation. So let's walk through these things. First is Open their eyes. He's, that's what he says. The, the world's eyes are shut. And through Paul, Christ plans to open them. In our sin, we avert our eyes from the truth, making ourselves unable to see the beauty and glory of Christ. And the devil capitalizes on this with deception, 
This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Paul describes his role and Christ's role saying, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as the Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I love how he references God's act in creation when God said, let there be light. And he says that same creative voice that spoke the light of the sun into existence has said, let there be light in our hearts, overcoming the darkness and the deception, opening our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what he does through the proclamation of the gospel. This is how he saves souls. He opens blinded eyes that they may be drawn to the light. And in the light, you can clearly see what is beautiful and what is ugly, what is good and what is evil, what is worthy and what is vile, and you are drawn to what can satisfy your soul you, when you really see it. It draws you. There's a band I've liked for a long time called Mumford & Sons, a secular band. You may have heard of them. And they, they have this one song called Roll Away Your Stone that I love, in which parts of it have always sounded to me like a conversation between him and a Christian trying to persuade him of his lostness and yet the reception of grace. And the verse says, you told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul. And I have filled this void with things unreal. And all the while, my character, it steals. Whoever told him these things is right on. But then in the chorus, he sings this, darkness is a harsh term, don't you think? Yet it dominates the things I seek. He seems to me a bit like King Agrippa. He sees the validity, but isn't fully persuaded. Whoever he had this conversation with is commendable though. Darkness is a harsh term, but that doesn't mean it's not true. It does dominate the things the world seeks. The next verse is actually quite beautiful. And this is how he responds with this conversation. Listen to how his conversation partner responds to him. He says, it seems that all my bridges have been burned. But you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start. In other words, what changes our heart is not the trudging effort, but the welcome of God in Christ. Amen. We've burnt our bridges, but Christ has built an unburnable one. Amen. And it leads us to God. And this is the next incredible blessing of our salvation. We are enabled to turn to God himself. It says, he says that they may turn from the power of Satan to God. And notice even the difference in how he says it here. He doesn't say turn from Satan to God. He doesn't say turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. He says turn from the power of Satan to God. God himself away from an abstract dominion of an evil one toward a personal relationship with a gloriously good one. 
Through Christ, we get God himself. Christ has made a way for we, his images, to be reconciled to our maker. I've probably told you how much I love the title of John Piper's book, God is the Gospel. The goodness of the good news is that we get God. We, are, we were alienated from our maker, our sustainer, the lover of our souls. We were alienated from him. And now we are reconciled to him in everlasting peace. This is the great reward above all other rewards. When we receive sight and are drawn to the light and shake off the lies that have buried us like a tomb, we see what is actually valuable. And first and foremost, we see the value of God, who is the source of all value. And suddenly, in light of his value, people become more valuable as his image bearers. The world and my own body and soul are more valuable as his creation. The church more valuable as his body and bride. Food is holier as I receive it with gratitude to him. Time is more precious as we re it's received as a gift and offered to him as a sacrifice. We live in the light and we live with him. And this is why Paul wished everyone could be as he is. But he talks about even more. The next thing that he says is that they may receive forgiveness of sins. When your eyes are open and you see the light, one of the first things you notice is how vastly different the light is from the dark. Darkness does indeed dominate the things the world seeks. And in that same light in which we see the value of God, we are awakened to how we have sinned against his value. Shunned it. Betrayed him. In the darkness, the starting point of how people view the world is man-centered, if not self-centered. But in the light, everything is God-centered. And this explains why people may not feel a great need for forgiveness, might think that they're okay and good people, because people may feel from a man-centered perspective and viewpoint that they are fairly satisfactory. But what about from a God-centered perspective, which is the true perspective of the world? Have you honored him and loved him and prioritized him with all your heart and all your life and all your mind? When you start to ask God-centered questions, sin becomes obvious and the need for forgiveness becomes desperate. But in the dark, people just don't think that way. But praise God that when he opened our eyes and draws us to the light and to himself, he offers us forgiveness of our sins. If he didn't, we would be even more broken than before. But in Christ, he removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Christ bore the penalty of our sin that we may be released from the devastating consequences of our sin. And there's more. The next thing he says we receive is a place, 
among those who are sanctified, we are given a place, a place of belonging, a welcome and reception into the distinct and holy community of faith. This is a part of what God envisions for salvation. We are given a place among his people, a place only we can fill, a place designated for us to care and be cared for, to know and be known, to love and be loved, to cooperate and partner and share and contribute, a place to belong, to no longer be adrift, to have a family that outlasts death, a home where we are more than welcomed, we are accepted and adopted. Christ gives us a place a place where we can finally really fit. And the next two blessings or gifts of salvation are implied by what he says about that place. He calls the people we are given a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we see that we receive sanctification and faith. First, sanctification. We are made holy. God called us, called us out to be distinctly God's own, meant for him and his purposes. If we can remove any, if we could possibly remove pride from this word, it's to say we are special. If you've ever had, it, to say we're special is a good understanding of what this means, to be holy. If you've ever had the experience of being honored to be a part of something, participating in something that humbled you at the same time that it made you feel special, that is holiness. We are special to God. Not by our own doing, but by his doing. This is what sanctification means. It means to be made holy. And holiness is being set apart for special purpose. And to live in holiness or sanctification is leaning into that purpose. Living, leaning in to that special purpose for holy and completely living for God. And that kind of life begins by and is sustained by faith. He says we are sanctified by faith. Made holy by our trust in Christ. And we often think of faith as something that we have, something that we do. But we don't often reflect on it as a beautiful gift of God. It really is a wonderful gift, faith. It's a beautiful thing to have. The hymn is right. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Amen. To have someone we can, without reservation, take at his word. Someone whose promises we can rest upon. I love how the hymn prays, Oh, for grace to trust him more. Faith is a gift of grace. And it is a good gift not just some spiritual duty. It is something to rejoice in. That salvation comes through faith is a good, is good news. That you trust in Christ to be what you have failed to be. That you trust Christ to take the weight of your failures and sin. You trust him with the various circumstances of life when your small mind can't work it all out. You trust him with how you are to live. And there's profound peace in faith. This is why in this account, Paul, uh, 
Paul says that when Jesus first called him, he said to him, I know it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were prods used by shepherds to keep the sheep where they want them. And Paul was being prodded by God and kicking back against that. He says, Jesus, he's, and Jesus says that that way of living, kicking against the goads is hard. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Working against God's purpose is painful. And he's calling him instead to a life of faith, of trust, of rest in Christ. As St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in God. And Jesus calls all of us, not just Paul. He calls all of us to faith, to trust him for he is trustworthy. Don't be like Agrippa, almost persuaded. Don't kick against the goads. Embrace the truth fully and forever. Christ offers his life for yours. It is the greatest offer imaginable. Humble yourself and take him up on it. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray like Paul that all who hear your word today will be as he was and is, as I am. I pray you open eyes to turn from darkness to light, to turn from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in your Son. And by your grace, grow our faith. Make us courageous and committed to our own roles as servants and witnesses to your son and all that we have seen him in and will see him in. We pray in deep gratitude for all that you've done for us. Thank you for our rich salvation. We pray with Jesus. Amen.